Um, we have had a good response to the heaven uh, to the heaven series, you know, that we're doing right now. Uh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Nothing works. Okay. I'll let you guys figure that out for me, okay? Hey, it works. Thank you very much. We've had a great response to the Heaven series. And um, if you didn't get the little reminder card, the little just card like this, you can, these are available out there, outdoors there um, at the, the registration desk upstairs. And also, if you need a Heaven booklet as a giveaway or invitation, um, these are also out there. And then also today, beginning today, um, we are going to begin to sponsor a discussion group for the Heaven series. And so if you have a question, a comment, or even you want to debate a particular topic, I'm sure that Scott Brubaker would be glad to have you there to do that. And so Scott's going to be leaving that discussion group. And today, Scott, you're going to be in East Swing Hall. Is that correct? Okay, great. So if you're interested in going downstairs and just saying, I heard something he said just now, and I have a question about that. I'd like to talk to someone about that. Then you can go downstairs. You go through the living room and right into the East Wing Hall. And he'll be there with a couple other people I believe are already going to be there with him. And that's going to be happening. It'll be happening for the duration of our teaching time here. So if you want to jump in on that, please do. All right? Very good. Let me see. As you know, we are in the content. We are doing this series right now. And, you know, and I've told you before, we're using a lot of the material from Randy Alcorn from his uh, Heaven book. And then also, like I wanted to mention also, we do have extra copies of the devotional still, if you're interested in one of those. And then today also, um, a Reverend Michael Walker, I'm using some uh, of his outline on a similar or a typical, uh, I mean, a similar um, talk on this particular material today. And last week, we talked about Heaven as a Compass how it guides us. And today we're going to continue to unflesh that, but we're going to do it from a different angle and all. And so before we go any further, um, Fareed, you have a, Fareed's going to play us a little video. To... All right. Do you think there'll be tots in heaven? What? Tots in heaven. Well, like angels with pearly deep fryers cooking them up? Man, it's heaven. And just rain tots. Or they grow on trees. Tots on trees. That's your idea of heaven. There won't be any tots on trees in hell. I can guarantee you that. Look, if we eat in heaven, I think it'd be something healthier than this. Like carrots or apples. Not something that's going to give you a heart attack. Dude, aren't we dead? I mean, your soul can't get a heart attack and you don't even have a body in heaven. Then how are you going to eat your tot? (laughs) Maybe it's a spiritual tot. Spiritual tots. Colonics got them, others don't. So there's a, a little bit of a takeoff of the Sonic ads. Instead of it being Sonic, you know, they talk, call it clonic, you know, there at the end and all. But that little clip there, you know, is a great illustration of the confusion and of the discussion that happens about what's going to happen in heaven. Like, you know, we don't even have bodies in heaven, or we're not even going to eat in heaven, and God forbid that there won't be tater tots in heaven. And if you really get the right kind of tater tots, you live a really good life, they'll have chili and cheese on them too, baby. All right? So... Because you know what? You won't gain weight in heaven. That's what makes it heaven. (laughs) Amen. Let's preach it. All right? Get me excited about that. All right. Let's open up our Bibles to Revelation 21. We're going to clear up some of that confusion a little bit today. And we're going to to, uh, just continue to learn a little bit about what we can expect when we get to the other side of this life. Revelation 21 
In this particular passage, this is what John is saying as he records it there. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God and made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain, and the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that what you say is faithful and true and that you are a keeper of your promises, you're a keeper of your word, and so when you say it, it's going to happen. And that gives us great, great hope in this life. Father, today, um, open up our minds and our hearts to what you have to say to us. Help us to, to be able to apply it to our lives and change us so that our vision for heaven, our hope for the future, gives us hope in this life. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so knowing this information, for one thing, knowing this information ought to give us a great deal of confidence. When you read that stuff there and you see that what's to come, that all things are going to be made new, that there is, no, there is no mourning or crying or pain, and all the first things have passed away, that gives us a great deal of confidence about what is to come. Because every day we are moving closer and closer to death. I mean, you guys have a little bit longer way than the rest of us do, and, uh, and then, although some of you are pushing the envelope at times, but you know, like, um, it's, it's going to happen. It's just guaranteed to happen. And so, and, that, and, and when you have a right perspective about heaven, that's how Paul writes in Philippians 1. He says, for me to live as Christ, to die, is not something that I'm worried about. He's not saying, for me to live as Christ and to die is something I'm not really excited about, but it's going to happen to all of us. No, he says, for me to die, for me to live as Christ, for me to die is gain. He has such a certainty about what's to come on the other side of death and that it is all good. No matter, it's not even all good. It is better than he could imagine. He says, because of that, that that's a good thing. One pastor said that death is a gift. Think about that. Death is a gift. Because it takes us from this life of pain, mourning, sorrow, brokenness, and it ushers us into a life with none of that. So, but, you know, one could ask the question, and I think it's worthwhile, because one of, part of one of the things that I've enjoyed in this study is, is a new heaven and a new earth. And I've never thought to ask the question, why? I've read it for, gener- for years. A new heaven and a new earth, yeah, that's what he said, it's going to happen. But why? Well, let's, let's go back into Genesis. Open up to Genesis 3 in your Bibles, please. And, you're gonna, and we're going to see creation. Actually, we're going to see what happens to creation in Genesis 3. Starting in verse 16, what led up to this just now is that Adam and Eve had disobeyed God, and God has, has um, uh, 
confronted them with their disobedience. And so now the players in this scene right here are God, Adam, Eve, his creation, and Satan there also. And now God is speaking to them in chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, I'm going to start in 14. And he said, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you, the snake, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he's really not speaking about serpents, reptiles, of which I hate. He's speaking about Satan. He's speaking about the devil, the the enemy of our souls. And he says, so he's saying to you, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And, And he, the seed, will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it, and all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Now, there's a particular word that is used repeatedly through that passage, and that word is cursed. And so you look, and he says to Satan, you are cursed. He says to the ground, it is cursed. He says to the ladies, he doesn't say you're cursed, but I have a feeling you feel that way in childbirth. He says to the ground, you are cursed, by, because thorns and thistles was what you'll grow. And then he says to the man, your curse is that you will no longer, it will no longer come easy to you, but now by the sweat of your brow. And so in Genesis 3, we see that all of creation, which was perfect and pristine, now all of a sudden, you know, all of creation was together. And now all of a sudden, in Genesis 3, it's been torn. The image is not completely damaged, but the image is damaged. It's no longer whole. It's no longer what it used to be. Now then, you flip forward. And, 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 and so, and, and, and when we think about this, we think about this in the, because we're humans, we think about us. Oh, I'm broken. I'm cursed. This is what's happening to me. And actually, you read the passage, and it's not just talking to us, it talks to all of creation. Flip over to, to Romans 8. Romans 8, 19. I have it up here if you don't have it. Um, depending on how quick you can go through your PDA or your iPhone or whatever. Romans 8 says this, we read this last week, it says, for the anxious longing of the creation. He's talking about all of creation. He's talking about me, he's talking about you, he's talking about the trees, he's talking about creation as a whole. And he says, so for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. So he's saying the creation was whole. But it was subjected to futility, not by its own choice, but by the choice of man in his disobedience. But because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. So when man sinned, when man tore that image, when he broke that image of God in himself and in all creation, he subjected it to corruption 
and to, to slavery to corruption. In other words, it is always beginning, it is falling apart slowly but surely. It's decaying. So to set it free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So he's speaking about this creation being marred and that it is waiting until it is redeemed, until it is restored. Now, and so there we have creation is broken. It longs for restoration and that's what's going on inside of us. It drives all of us. You know, we, we are broken ourselves. We, that image of God in us, you know, you've heard people, some people describe it as, as, a, as a God-shaped hole. And so that image of God in us, you know, it used to be complete and now all of a sudden it has something wrong with it. It has a void. It has a hole. It has a gap in it. It has something that's broken in it. That's in us. That's in our spirit. That's in our soul. It is broken. It is damaged. Mars by our sin. And so he's saying that damage is longing to be fixed. And so and, and in, and, and the, the desire to fill that hole with something is what moves us toward our addictions, toward our idols, toward all the stuff that eats at us instead of fulfills us. And so the desire to please peers and please neighbors is a desire to fill the hole. The desire to have a title before your name is a desire to fill the hole. The desire to have a bank account balance is a desire to fill the hole. All that stuff that we chase after that runs us into the ground is a desire to fill the hole. But then Jesus says, I came and I fill the hole for you. And you can rest in that. You don't have to chase anymore. My burden is light. I fill the hole for you. You don't have to do it anymore. That's what he says. And so that drives us to all that stuff that leaves us void. But in this life, right now, we still... Jesus is in us. He is redeeming us, but not completely. We are not yet. But in heaven, it'll be complete. And so that brokenness, that corruption, that decay that is happening, in this life it is only partial. But in the next life, eternity holds holds the ultimate fix. Heaven. Last week, you know, I said that heaven is not the default destination. And I was speaking about people of faith and people not of faith. But that is still true this week for even this talk. Because when we talk about where we are going when we die, we talk about going to heaven, but that's not the final destination. There's more than heaven. And if you've been doing your devotionals and Alcorn's work and stuff, you're getting the sense of that. Usually when we refer to heaven, we mean that place where Christians go when they die. You know, we will tell our children, you know, that, that, that grandma went to heaven. You know, we tell them that's where people go when they die. That's what we taught. That's what we say. And it's not wrong. But heaven, as we talk about it in that way, is an intermediary. And, and it's an, an in-between place. It's a temporary holding place. And I'm not talking about purgatory. And I'm just going to be so bolted today, and I don't usually talk like this. There is no such thing as purgatory. I know that many of us are taught that. But that is a tradition of man, not a biblical teaching. 
And so in the context of that, what we try and do is we say that what we believe came from here. So you don't find purgatory in here. You don't find it in here. What we do find is that when we die, we go to heaven. And that later on we're taught that that heaven eventually, that eventually we go to a new heaven and a new earth. And so when we talk about heaven, when we talk about going to heaven, we're talking about going to a place that will stay until Christ reigns, until Christ returns, and he sets up a new and a heaven and a new earth that we read about in Revelation 21. So as much as heaven is a wonderful place, this new heaven, this new earth is going to be amped up. It's going to be more than we can imagine. And so we as Christians will live forever, but not in heaven. We'll live in heaven for a while. We'll live in the new earth, the new Jerusalem, new heavens forever, for all of eternity. For all eternity. In this present heaven, everyone is in Christ's presence. Everyone is there. Everyone is joyful. There is, is, but there's more to look forward to when, he, when Christ resurrects all of those dead saints. When, everything, when he brings everything into culmination in that new heaven and that new earth. And it may seem strange to say that, heaven, that, that, that the heaven we go to at death isn't eternal. But that's true. And, and for instance, Alcorn has this... this um, analogy, and I've adapted it to a Texas analogy. All right, very good. So let's just say, and if you've done your devotional, you might already came across this analogy, but let's just say that you live in a homeless shelter here in Lower Bucks County, and one day you inherit a beautiful, large farm with full mineral rights, that means all the oil underneath it's yours, and full water rights, which means all the water underneath it's yours too, in Leveland, Texas. There you go. You see, that's a great, right there. You could live there. Matter of fact, this is what it looked like yesterday. Yeah, dust storm. That's right, yesterday, November, it was a dust storm. It turned on the streetlights yesterday. So you get a beautiful farm in Leveland, Texas, and it is specially designed, this, this home you'll have to keep all the sand out. It will be tornado-free. There are no weeds in the yard. The grass is green all year round. You will get barbecue delivered to your house every single Monday. Tex-Mex every Wednesday and fried chicken every Friday. In between, you eat the leftovers, all right? Glory to God, all right? That's Stubbs Barbecue in Lubbock, Texas. He's the guy on your barbecue bottles. He came from Lubbock. Amen. And you'll get collard greens with the green fried chicken, okay? Now then, and so, and then, and, and that is, and that right there is your cotton fields right there. Those are your circles. That's your irrigation. All that is yours. It's all yours. It's beautiful. It's watered. It's green. It's irrigated. And then at night, you get to watch the sunsets. I don't know about the mornings. We wouldn't have to get up in the mornings. At night, you get to watch the sunsets. And, and, and then in the, in the evenings, because the horizon is giant and it's flat, you can just watch the thunderstorms off out in the distance for hours and just watch God manifest himself. And he'll put one on for you anytime you want. You just say so, right? And then finally, you'd be close to everyone who loves the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> Obviously, we need a lot more biblical education in this church. But, you want know, to tell you something, nothing, nothing flies directly into Leveland, Texas. Nothing does. You have to go through Dallas-Fort Worth. And you have to spend an afternoon there because you have a layover. And there's a barbecue place there as well. Anyway, and so Dallas-Fort Worth is not a bad place. It's a good place. It's a fine place to spend a few hours. It's 
heaven. But Leveland is a new earth. And so, you know, you get there in Dallas and, you just, and you're going to be there for a little bit, but it's not where you're staying. It's not your true destination. So when you show up at the airport and that TSA guy is saying your destination, you don't say Dallas-Fort Worth. You say Leveland. And so what Alcorn is teaching, what the Bible teaches, is that really we say we're going to heaven when we die. And he's going, no, 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 no. No, that's like saying you're going to Dallas-Fort Worth on your way to Leveland. Where you're going is a new heaven and a new earth. That's where you spend all eternity. In between, you're going to spend some time in this heaven, this temporary place with Christ. This temporary place. So he talks about that. And that's how his, his analogy that I've warped here for us today, his analogy is saying that like, when we die here, we're going to go to a place that is better than we can imagine, but it still pales in comparison to a new heaven and a new earth that will eventually rule and reign with Christ in. And so that's what he's speaking about when he talks about a heaven and the difference between heaven and a final destination. This final estate is the fix. This final estate is the solution to Genesis 3. So, for instance, what we're saying then about it is that Genesis 3 and Revelation are bookend. And in Genesis, we, were, we, were, we have full perfection, full fellowship, intimacy with God. And then we broke it in sin. And so everything between these two bookends is in this state of disrepair. And for some of us in Christ, we have begun to feel redeemed. We've begun to feel ourselves being repaired, but we won't fully be that way until the other bookend of Revelation. Revelation 21. And so Revelation, Genesis and Revelation are the bookend. They, they are on either side of the brokenness. One was perfect, and then it is restored in Revelation. And so that's what he's saying in, Genesis, in Romans 8 when he says that all of creation is urging, is longing is, is, uh, for what is to come. And what is to come is Revelation 21. To be restored, to be made new, as Christ calls it. So, there are many themes in Revelation 21 from the Bible that are brought together in this vision, and it continues on through chapter 22. But let's just talk about a couple of things, first of all. First of all, all of creation will be restored. By renewing all things in heaven and earth, God will reverse the curse of the land that happened in Genesis 3 as a result of our human sin. And ever, and ever since humans were cast out of paradise and creation was turned against them because of their sin, it was clear that there was a drama of redemption that would involve restoration. Not just of us, which we talk about a lot, but also of creation, the land. Of all creation, all that he'd made, it would be restored, would be made new. And it'll happen in this new heaven and this new earth. And it's foreshadowed in Scripture, especially in the idea of a promised land in the Old Testament. God's people would be gathered together to enjoy creation's um, blessing in the land of flowing with milk and honey, he says. And of course we know that ultimately Israel was cast out of that promised land too. You see, there's, there's promises made. We have paradise, we have Eden, 
man was cast out. We have a promised land. It's going to be great, but man was cast out. Again, rebellion, rebellion. And their exile from, and their, their restoration from exile was never fully complete, but there was always a hope. You know, if you've ever been to any Jewish celebration, it's always like next year in Jerusalem. True? Yes? And so, but there's this hope of restoration that the land would be fulfilled when Jesus returns and establishes, or when Messiah returns and establishes a new land, a new heaven, a new earth for his people, and they will all live there together. The major point to this is just that the whole creation suffered the consequences of human sin, and then the whole creation will be redeemed along with us in Christ's resurrection. And the decisive victory of God over death and destruction, and it demonstrates that there's a physical matter that was made corrupted, will be incorruptible. And that new heaven, that new earth, what does it say that Peter talks to us about having hope that is, in, that is imperishable, that cannot be corrupted? Going further, uh, I, um, and going further, he's talking, this, this is where that passage is talking about the desire to be redeemed, and oh, I should have brought that up a moment ago. But further on, there is a, a physical and a restored world. World, The creation wakes, um, so um, the first things we need to see is that in the next world, our eternal home, this new heaven, this new earth, is a physical and restored world. You know, again, you know, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, that so much of what people envision, it's everyone has a cloud, everyone has wings, a halo, and a harp. You know, and Farside, you know, had that comment about, I wish I'd brought a magazine, because it's boring. You know, those are all these, these perceptions about heaven. And yet, it's not so much about being on a cloud because we read in Scripture that it would be a physical and a restored world. And it will never fall into sin again because it rests on the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I realize that there's a long tradition in the church of thinking about eternity as, as floating as disembodied spirits, disembodied spirits and stuff. And our hymns picture life in eternity like that too sometimes. But the Bible doesn't. The Bible tells us of a cosmic redemption, a restoration of all creation, And God is not going to destroy the world so much as he is going to restore it. I'm making all things new. And so, we'll also have a restoration of God's presence. If you know your story in Genesis, or you know, if we'd read a little bit earlier in Genesis, we would have seen where God and mankind, God and Adam and Eve, had this intimacy where they were conversing, where they were together. And in that sin, that, that intimacy, that communion, that relationship was broken. And then in Christ, that relationship, that, that communion, that intimacy has been restored to a degree because he lives in us, he lives through us, but it is not what it will be. It's not what it was in Genesis, in the garden. It's not what it will be when we're with him. And so the afterlife for us has this time where we are restored into a full relationship with him. We are restored into a relationship where we will be able to see him and experience him in all of his glory. We're restored to a relationship where there will be a communion that will be unbroken by sin, rebellion, our desires, or anything else. 
And so what we long for most at times in this life is that, is that intimacy with and that desire to be able to hear distinctly his voice in that moment when we need it so desperately. And maybe we don't hear it in that moment. In the next life, we will always hear it. There will not be any break in that relationship at all. Matter of fact, we even read where um, uh, Isaiah talks about hearing a loud voice. John talks about hearing a loud voice. He hears, they hear his voice. They know it. They, they know it's him. And so when we talk about like, whether we're making a distinction between heaven as an, inter, as, a, as an in-between place between this life and the new earth and the new heaven, the fact of the matter is, is that we are with him. And so anywhere we are in that afterlife, whether it's in heaven or whether it's in a new earth and a new heaven, we are with him. And simply put, it's just that wherever Jesus is, that will be like heaven. And wherever we are, we'll be with him. And that communion is restored. So one of the questions that people often wonder about is, what would that life be like there? People ask about, it's amazing that if you just go through a question, if you go through a Q&A about heaven, one of the most frequently asked questions is about people's pets. I'm astonished by that. I like my dog, but I'm not as concerned about where he is in the afterlife as I am about my children and myself. And he's a good dog. My cat? But my dog is a good dog. Yeah. Yeah. She feels differently about the cat. But people are concerned about that. We'll talk about that later, all right? But this is what we do know about being in heaven, is that, we'll be, that the, the world will be cleansed and perfected, and that, and that we will have responsibility. It won't be a boring thing. It won't be a thing of just sitting around waiting for stuff. We'll have responsibility. Because in this present world, we had to work for stuff. In the next world, we'll work because we have someone we want to work for. It won't be burdensome. It won't be like that at all. Matter of fact, if we continue to read in Revelation 22, it says that the saints will reign with Christ forever and ever. And that, in other words, we'll be restored, many of us, to some kind of, well, not restored, but we'll have some kind of vocation that is given to us that is our responsibility. And the fact of the matter is, is that what we do in this life determines what we'll be doing in the next life. And if you go to the parables, and you have the one parable about, about the workers, and how one worker got paid some, and one worker got paid a little less, and one worker was given more authority and more responsibility because of their performance, because of how they dealt with it. And that is simply just a parable about heaven. And that what we do in this life, how we handle what he gives us, how we are devoted to him, how we are, are serving others, how we do that in this life says that impacts how much responsibility, how much authority, how much ruling and reigning we will do with him in the next life. And so a couple of the things that, you know, we can, we can look at in the next life that we can consider, and this is just a really very brief summary, you know, is that in the next life, we know that we'll be able to worship without distraction. Debbie read that verse to us where it talks about from every nation, tongue, tribe, and people, that we will worship. And we've read about those worship scenes in the Bible that we'll be able to serve without exhaustion. This is how one pastor has summarized it. That we'll be able to serve without exhaustion and without disillusionment. Because I can just tell you that if you've ever served around here, you can know it can be disillusioning at times. Where you're like going, what am I doing this for again? What? 
but not in heaven. There'll be no disillusionment about who we're serving and why we serve. Fellowship without fear. In this life, you sit into a small group, and you've heard it a thousand times if you've ever heard it once. Well, I'd love to share that in a small group, but I don't know what they'll do with it. I can't be honest about what's going on in my life because I'm not sure what they'll do with it. It's a fear. Because sin has corrupted our relationships and has corrupted our motives and has corrupted our decision-making skills about what we do with things and the information we have and how we evaluate it and how we begin to elevate one another over the other because this person shared this and this person didn't, so on and so forth. But in the afterlife, we'll be with each other without a fear of that. It won't enter into our relationships. Learn without fatigue and then rest without boredom. All, all these things, it's just, it is just, if you can imagine perfection, you can, you can imagine that's what heaven will be like. Now then, will we eat? The resurrected Christ was cooking fish. He talks about there being a banquet, a festival in heaven that includes food. It'd be a very weird banquet if you showed up and there was no food. Or if there was food, he says, I'm sorry, you're all resurrected, you can't eat it. And so it appears that we'll eat. What will our bodies be like? We know from Scripture this, that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah were there. And their bodies in that state were recognizable to the apostles. We know that. We know that when Jesus appeared to Mary, she immediately knew who he was. Matter of fact, she knew his voice. She knew his voice. The only person that we know of that we could say without, with a certain degree of a certainty that has a resurrected body the way that all of ours would be, would be Jesus. And so in that, he still, it says that he, he showed Thomas what? Yes. And then what does it say about the lamb? It appeared as if he was, had been slain. And so we know that we will recognize a lot of who we are right now. And so then is, can we say, when we talk about the, the, that what is broken, when, we talk, when I prayed for you, Kelly, I'm praying that someday that your MS will be gone. Maybe not in this life, but in the next life. But what does that mean, though? Because if Christ's wounds were still there, what does that mean for this other stuff? I can't fully say. I can't fully say, but what I do believe is that I'll be there with him. And whatever lingers from this life would be really okay. (laughs) I don't know how he works that out. I don't know how he works that out. But it'd be better in the next one. Yeah. What else? When we think about that, we know that... um, The resurrection body also will never perish. Whether we know what that resurrection body looks like, we don't know. You know, we would venture to say that, that when Moses and Elijah appeared, they appeared in some form of resurrection, in some form of body, embodiment of some type. But it was not necessarily a resurrected body because that hadn't happened until Christ returns. And later on, and so we'd have to imagine, matter of fact, there's even a passage where 
um, God is speaking to the martyrs and he says that he gives them a white robe until he, he resolves all things. And so it would appear somewhat that when we immediately die, that we have some type of embodiment that is almost like a housecoat. It's not yet our full apparel, but it's yet it's not without at all. And so this next life, we know we still have a body. We still know we'll be recognizable. We still know that we'll eat. We still know that we'll have relationships, that we'll be with each other, that we'll have tasks, we'll have responsibilities, that we'll worship, that we'll be active. There'll be no harps. If they are, we'll know how to play them really well. That's what we do know about the next life. And last week we talked about the next life as a compass. And so when we consider this life and we compare it to what we know about the next life, about whether it's heaven as an intermediate place or as the final eternal resting spot of a new heaven and a new earth, it is better than this one. It is better than this one. We talked about the next life being a compass for this life. Hope for what is next, hope for this new world, should loosen our grip on the things of this world. I mean, I'm, like I've said, told you before, I'm think very, I, I love images. I love stories that I can attach meaning to. And I say, oh, it's like this. Or it could be like this, but it's going to be better. So you think of, of Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. And I know some of you saw that late in life. You know, but I, mean, I know somebody with Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz. And like she wasn't home. But she was in an amazing place where animals talked and, and all kinds of things happened. But it wasn't home. And she knew that. And this hope of returning back to home drove her. It compelled her. It helped her not get attached to Oz because it wasn't hers. When we read about Revelation 21, when we read about anything that Christ has to say to us about heaven, about what is to come next, what he's doing is he's saying, this is what's true. Just like at that very end of Revelation 21, this is faithful and true. It will happen. And in doing that, what he's saying is like, don't get attached to Oz. It's nothing. It is nothing compared to what's to come. And whatever you're going through right now, it will be done. And when it's done, everything that is to come will cause what you're going through now to be no problem. A blink of the eye, a passing thought, a stubbed toe, done and on. That is hope. That's why knowing about heaven, that's why learning about heaven, that's why being excited about heaven heaven keeps us from being attached to this life and taking cheap trinkets, taking cheap substitutes for what's to come, for what's really ours. Ours. 